Okay, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. And uh, you may be interested to know that this is broadcast number 40, which means this is the 40th week of our study. And my goal was to hopefully have this done within 52 weeks, which of course is one year. But I'm thinking now that with three months to go, it's not going to happen. So I'm going to revise it to a probably an 18-month study. So it would have been a 12-month study, will be an 18-week, uh, excuse me, an 18-month study. So one year to 18 months, we'll see. It may be possible to have it done within the original 52-week plan, but I'm thinking it's more likely to be 18 months. But we'll see. But uh, last time we ended off in Acts 17, 14, and I'll read it to you this morning. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go, as it were, to the sea. But Silas and Timotheus abode there still. Paul was rescued from imminent danger. And his two cohorts, his two disciples, Silas and Timothy, remained put. Now Paul was an apostle and Timothy was a disciple. But you can't replace an apostle because an apostle was an eyewitness to the Lord's ministry and resurrection. And I want to make that point because some groups think that apostles are still on the earth today. And I'm not referring to the Catholics or the Mormons. Many Pentecostal churches hold to such a view. But let's start today's broadcast, if we may, in Acts 17, verse 15. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens. And receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus for to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now Paul wants his two colleagues to join him. Timothy was his spiritual son, and Paul would write two epistles to Timothy, a young man, probably in his thirties, not a pastor, as some commentaries refer to him as being, but simply a leader, an elder in the early church. 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Now the Jews that were in Athens were like Lot back in Genesis, completely ineffective, completely indifferent. And if you are living in a town or a city and you've got great sin where you live, and the chances are you will have great sin in your local towns and cities, then that's down to two reasons. First of all, it's down to the fact that that town has, has rejected God. And secondly, it's down to the fact that the churches in that town are ineffective. And here, Paul has arrived in Athens, the capital of academia, the capital of Greece, and they had quite a legacy. And it says his spirit was stirred in him. If you are on fire for the Lord, you cannot be indifferent. You cannot sit on the fence indefinitely. You can't be completely disinterested in what is going on in your community. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, in reference to Silas and Timothy, of course, his spirit was stirred in him. He's grieved. He's a holy man, and he knows that there's great sin. When he saw the city wholly given to idolatry, worship anything and anything. And yet, one more time, how could it be possible that the local Jewish community hadn't preached against it? Why did it take Paul's arrival to preach against this wickedness? Look at 17. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews, and with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. It's quite possible that Paul was a street preacher. And I gave a quote some weeks ago from Charles Spurgeon, who said that if you are a pastor and you never preach outside of your four walls, you are a disgrace. You are doing a disservice to your office. You are not representing 
the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that you should be. And here it says how Paul went into the synagogue of the Jews. He's disputing with them. This isn't just a quick chat over a coffee. He is disputing with them about the Lord, of course, and with the devout persons, those of great stature, and in the market daily with them that met with him. Street preaching, I believe. On top of that, possibly personal discipleship. And there's something about doing street work which you will never experience until you've done it. And I believe that men of God, those that have been saved for a period of years, should be able to preach in their towns. On a soapbox, why not? Get a sign up, why not? Preach through a megaphone, why not? Share the gospel, absolutely. 18. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What would this babbler say? Other some, he seemeth to be a set of forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. They were totally dead in their sins, this group of people, and I'll come to them in a moment, which is a picture of you and I before we were saved. And I've been street preaching for 14 years now, and I've seen people's expressions when they walk past me, and sometimes they mock you, sometimes they curse you, sometimes they spit at you, sometimes they physically assault you. But more often than not, they are totally indifferent. They are dead from the neck up. They're unsaved. And yet Paul, to his credit, is preaching the gospel. And you've got two groups of individuals here. The Epicureans and the Stoics. Two groups of first century uh, people that were very popular in Greece. And the first group were very much into the belief that the chief end of man was to avoid pain. And I would imagine that would be in reference to spiritual pain. Physical pain would be obvious. Who wants to experience pain? Nobody, of course. But they wanted to avoid pain. So therefore, preaching about sin, preaching about everlasting hell, would have grated with them enormously. On top of that, they didn't deny the existence of God per se, but they believed that God, deity, a higher being, however you wanted to offer him, if you were part of this group, was totally disconnected with the affairs of men. Now Allah, interestingly enough, means the God. And Allah is very similar to what this group of people held to. There's not much reference in the Quran to him being a God of love. But examine Jesus Christ, who reflects Almighty God, and you see him weeping over Jerusalem, you see him pleading with his people, you see him traveling all over Israel for three and a half years to get his people saved. The other group of people here, the Stoics, taught self-mastery. That the goal in life was to teach a place of indifference to pleasure or pain. A bit like the Buddhists, I would imagine. They're very good at abstaining from this and that. Not enjoying any kind of uh, pleasure. In fact, there are Catholics, and I'm thinking of the Opus Dei movements, that are very much into denying themselves, denying the pleasures of life. And they do this to earn favour with God. And of course they also fall short of the glory of God because Christ died for us. And yet I will say this is a quick footnote that once you are saved, you should deny yourself. You should pick up your cross each and every day and follow the Lord wherever he leads you. 
You live for him, you don't live for yourself. But this group, 1718, are what we call academia. They are philosophers, and such people are always dangerous. And they had no real comprehension as to what Paul was preaching to them. So I just imagine him arriving in town, preaching to them, and they're asking themselves, who does this man think he is? They call him a babbler. Somebody who is simple, somebody who is somewhat stupid. But these philosophers, Epicureans, and Stoics died out. In fact, most of the people we read of in the scriptures have died out, apart from the Jews, of course. What will this babbler say? Who is this base fellow? Who is this individual preaching to us? We're not told much about Paul's appearance, but what he was preaching went over their heads. But it says, He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods. Paul wasn't a polytheist, he was a monotheist. And yet, they're not saved, so we shouldn't be too surprised. Because he preached unto them Jesus, not religion. He preached unto them Jesus, not church membership. He preached unto them Jesus, not prosperity and the resurrection. Take that away, man has no hope whatsoever. And I put it to you this morning that if you were to be a Stoic or an Epicurean, and if you thought that it was all here and now, if you thought that your best life is ahead of you, if you thought that the God of your choice was indifferent, that somehow it was down to you to make the most of your life, you just wait till you're on your sickbed. You just wait till you're being diagnosed with leukemia, or you are about to lose your sight, or you can no longer walk. We know a chap in our town who can't even digest his food. And I would put him in his 70s, and he was explaining to Patrick some weeks ago that when he tries to eat, his food comes up again. Now, I don't know what that's all about. I'm not a medical expert, but he has great problems digesting his food. We know another woman that uh, had gone abroad with her husband, and the husband was telling Patrick that during their time abroad, she suffered a stroke. And she came back from her trip abroad and can no longer taste food. She lost her power of taste. Food must be very bland now to her. Just two people, both struggling with food. One cannot digest, the other cannot even taste food. And we take so much for granted. But you wait until you're on your sickbed. And somebody comes along to you and tries to preach this prosperity message. You wait till you're dying. Without Christ, you are sunk And I put it to you this morning that you need a saviour. You need a helping hand from the Son of God. But until you turn to him, until you humble yourself, he won't turn to you and he will not save you. But it's sad that this group of people, 18, are completely indifferent, completely incapable of comprehending the gospel. But that, of course, was you and I before we got saved. Look at 19, please. And they took him. And brought him unto Arapaeus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. They took him, they detained him, and brought him unto Arapaeus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. It was new, brand new. And I said this last week, and I say it again, that you cannot duplicate what we are reading from Acts of the Apostles. Adam 
was the first to name the animals, that never happened again. Moses took the children of Israel through the Red Sea, that will never happen again. Christ came and died on the cross, that will never happen again. These are one-off events. So for Paul, arriving in Athens to preach the gospel to them, was something which had never happened before. And Areopagus was the highest court in Mars Hill. Now, he wasn't arrested, but he was detained. And it's a fine line. And it's interesting to me, as we read the next few verses, that Paul doesn't go there of his own accord. He is taken there. And Calvinists will say, well, what's happening here is the Lord has stepped in and the Lord is using this group of philosophers, this uh, community of Greeks to take Paul up to their capital. They want to interrogate him. But he doesn't go there voluntarily. You would have thought he just arrived in town. You would have thought he would go to, to the nearest meeting point to preach to the people. But that's not what happens. This group take him there and then he opens his mouth. And starts to preach to them. Which is what the Lord told would happen to him. Back in Acts chapter 9. 20. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know therefore what these things mean. For thou bringest strange things to our ears. Of course they never heard this before. Some are dying for their sins. And coming up out of the tomb after three days. Somebody resurrecting themselves from the tomb after three days. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. Tell us more, Paul. We are interested. We are somewhat perplexed. 21. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Nothing new there whatsoever. Most churches meet for themselves. Most churches preach to themselves. And I've watched these groups over the years. They exist for themselves. They are completely insulated And here these Athenians, these Greeks, and strangers with them spent their time in nothing else. A talking shop, but either to tell or to hear some new thing. They're not really interested in what Paul has to say, and yet he's somewhat unusual to them. It's a bit like, I guess, back in the Old Testament when Samson was about to be put to death. And it says, he made sport for them. He was a spectacle to them and for them. He was there to please them. And here they're going to interrogate Paul. And they probably thought to themselves, we'll have some fun with this Hebrew. You know, we're of the class of academia. We went to Athens High. We got PhDs, BAs, THDs. We're pretty smart. We went to Cambridge, Oxford, Harvard and Yale. We're something else. And yet they've got a match on their hands because Paul was pretty bright himself. And yet Paul is the exception. Because the scripture makes it clear that God doesn't call people that are particularly bright to preach the gospel. He chooses ordinary people who don't have that background. He wants to allow his message to shine through them. He doesn't want their ego or their education to become a stumbling block. Because somebody once said, and this is a good point, that you can talk somebody into the kingdom of God, and then someone comes along and can talk them out of the kingdom of God. And that's very true. So we don't have a reason people from an intellectual perspective, and yet... I said last week, you can use apologetical tactics to witness to people. I'm all for that. But normally when I speak to people in the streets, I try to deal with the heart issue. And what I do normally is I put myself on the stand and I'll say something along the lines of this, that I've sinned and I've done A, B and C and therefore I should be judged for what I've done. You see, it's very difficult for somebody to call me too judgmental when I'm judging myself. (laughs) If I judge them, 
and say you're going to burn, then they might have a point. But if I put myself on the stand and condemn myself, then it's very difficult for them to shut me down. And here Paul has been detained and they are waiting for him to explain the gospel to them. But look what he does in verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're too superstitious. He judges them. He doesn't accept them. He doesn't say God will receive you. He doesn't say God is your father. He doesn't say you're good to go. He says, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Now picture this for one moment, please. Paul is a Jew preaching to the Gentiles. And you would have thought that what he would do is go to the law. Ten Commandments and use the Ten Commandments to show them their sin. That's what I do. But that's not what he's going to do. 23. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare unto you. This is fascinating. To the unknown God, uppercase, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Now when I read this a few weeks ago, in anticipation for recording this morning, I was thinking to myself, what is going on here? Because we know that before a man is saved, he is completely lost. He is an enemy of God. He is dead from the neck up. He is on his way to hell. And yet Paul says that as he passed by, he beheld their devotions. Public worship, sacrifice, so on and so forth. I found an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God. So they are worshipping this unknown God. Probably in reference to verse 18 from the Stoics and the Epicureans. Like Allah, the God. Totally unknowable. But we hope we will be okay with him when we face him at judgment. Unlike the God of the Bible who is very knowing, very uh, loving. I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. What is going on here? You would have thought Paul would have said to this group of people, you're worshipping the devil. Because Satan will take worship from anyone and anything. He will take direct worship and indirect worship. But Paul, perhaps being somewhat diplomatic here, Paul being led by the Holy Ghost, doesn't approach this from a negative point and risk being put to death. He approaches this from a positive perspective. It says in verse 24, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. And hath determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him, and find him. They be not far from every one of us. For in him we live, and move, and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Let's break this down. 24. God. Elohim. Jehovah. Kulios. God. Not God's God. That made the world and all things therein. Out goes evolution. Seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth. He is in charge of heaven and earth. He's sovereign. The Jews call that El Alion. El Alion simply means he is the sovereign one. And sometimes our Calvinist brethren think that for those of us which aren't Calvinists that we don't hold to the sovereignty of the Lord. We certainly do. But we also believe that man has free will due to the Lord's good pleasure to give it to us. 
God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Out goes church buildings. Neither is worshipped with men's hands. Out goes the Eucharist, the so-called transubstantiation, as though he needed anything. He doesn't need you or I to do anything for him. Why? Seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. He is the giver. He is the dispenser. He is the sustainer of everyone and everything. And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. That starts very much back in Genesis 11 concerning Babylon, of course. And hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of the habitation. He is completely in charge of everything. And if you don't believe me, look at Romans 8, 28, when you get a chance. That they should seek the Lord. Now the emphasis is on the recipient. That they should seek the Lord. And Calvinists say, no, you can't come to him unless he draws you to him. But that's not what my text is telling me this morning. You have to seek him. That they should seek the Lord. The scripture says, you would not come to me that you might have everlasting life. Not that you cannot come to me, but that you would not come to me. That they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. So it's possible for everybody to be saved. Please keep that in mind, because the cancer of Calvinism continues to spread. But let's read on. For in him we live, 28, and move and have our being. It's all about him, not us. As certain also of your own poets have said. He now quotes one of their own people. For we are also his offspring. We are physical descendants of Adam. But we are not the sons of God until we are born again. So the fatherhood of God is out. The brotherhood of man is out. You must be born again to be part of the family of God. So Paul is looking at their physical lineage. He is saying that we are all physical descendants from Adam. We've all come from the one true God, which is true. And you can use this with the Muslims as well when you want to witness to them. They will agree with you on that point, as will the Jews, incidentally. But it's not enough to be a physical descendant. For in him we live and move and have our being. Yes, as certain also of your own poets have said. They won't disagree with that. For we are also his offspring. Very true. So the tulip is out. As far as I'm concerned. Erroneous teaching of limited atonement is out. 27 and 28. And this book isn't even a theological book. This is simply Paul preaching the truth. Progressive revelation, quite possibly. And I may have time to elaborate on that today. Although it may be next week now. In fact, I'll finish today in verse 29. As I'm almost out of time. For as much then as we are the offspring of God. We ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone. Graven by art, a man's device. God is unimaginable. And that's why images of God are prohibited. That's why the worship of images, even the creation of images of God, is unacceptable. And you would read in First John chapter 5 that John didn't want his audience worshipping idols. A picture, a statue, a wafer. 25, a church system, 24, can become an idol. But I am fascinated when I look at verses 22 down to 29, that Paul doesn't start with the heart, man's heart, of course. He doesn't start with man's 
inability to save himself, he bypasses that. But he will build on, he will build up to that, he will deal with that during my study next week. But he deals with the fact that they are worshipping God in ignorance. Superstitious, heathen, pagans, and he will build on that to make it very clear that on the one hand the Lord understands this, which shows his grace, but it's not enough just to be a physical descendant. It's not enough just to be in the line of Adam. You've got to be in the line of Christ to be saved. But 29, one last time, we ought not to think that the Godhead, Trinity, is like under gold or silver or stone, graven by art, a man's device. The Godhead, the Trinity of God. And I do believe that God is three persons, but one God. I am a monotheist, and I stand firm on that. So I'm out of time for today. So you've got Acts 17, 15 down to 29. You've got Paul arriving in Athens. He's been uh, detained, not arrested. And he's been asked to explain himself at uh, Ericopus 29, their high court. And this is a public defense of the gospel. And during his time there, he will preach against them. He doesn't embrace them, but he, he judges them. And you can judge people. He goes straight to the one true God, creating everyone and everything. And this is a slightly unusual route, because as I say, you would have thought he would have gone to the law and broken them down as unsaved pagans, but he's more diplomatic. And on this occasion, the Holy Spirit wants him to deal with creation and use creation to show them that they are in ignorance, they're in darkness, and that they need to be born again to be reconciled to the one true God. But I'm out of time for this morning. I'll pick it up next week in Acts 17, verse 30.